Welcome to Success in Brief. I'm your host, Roseanne Filicello. In every episode, we spotlight successful women in the law. We discuss with them their journey to success. We talk about the difficulties and the trade-offs, along with the highlights and the benefits, and about what success means to each of them. We hope to inspire you with these stories on your own path to success. Hello, my name is Roseanne Filicello, and this is Success in Brief. Today, we welcome Michelle Rufano, who's a partner at Patterson Belknap uh, in New York City. It's a 200-attorney law firm with a national presence. Uh, Michelle's also a good friend of mine. I'm so excited that she's here to join us today. Michelle originally focused her practice on products liability law and since, since expanded her practice to focus on entrepreneurial law and litigation for corporate clients. She also maintains a thought-provoking blog and has a lot of other exciting things going on uh, right now, including uh, writing a book. Uh, she's about to uh, start at the Bank of America Institute for Women's Entrepreneurship at Cornell. And uh, I'm thrilled to have Michelle here to talk about all these great events going on in her life. Um, and also, you should know that Michelle has a vision uh, for a world where all women thrive, and she's really doing her best and doing her part in making a significant contribution to making that a reality. So thank you, Michelle, for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here, Roseanne. Thanks so much for inviting me. Michelle also, you should know, has a VA from Wellesley and a, her JD from Seton Hall, and she also clerks. So let's jump right in, Michelle. What was your path to becoming an attorney? So it's kind of it was kind of a straightforward path, and then it took a little detour. Um, when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I remember being asked in fourth grade you know, on the move up day to fourth grade, "What did you want to be when you grow up?" And I said lawyer and spelled it L A W E R. Um, and <laughs> I generally kind of maintained that path all through high school um, and college. And then my senior year in college, I was working on an honors thesis in political science. And I was really enjoying the political science stuff. And my advisor said, well, why don't you apply to some PhD programs, take the take the exams, apply to some PhD programs and see what happens. Um, so I ended up getting into those PhD programs and I got into some law schools. So um, come April of 1993, I had some decisions to make, um, which freaked my mother out. And she felt very strongly that I should be a lawyer because she wanted to make sure I could always make a living to support myself. And she was worried that if I was got a PhD and became a professor, that I would be unable to do that. So she was pretty adamant about me going to law school. And I was confused. So I said, you know what? Screw it. Um, I'm going to take a year off, which obviously did not go over well. <laughs> and when I say off, I meant just not go to grad school. I worked for a law firm um, during that year in, in Boston. And I um, did not make enough money, which I didn't realize because, you know, you're 22 and you think, you know, you're, well, at least for me, I thought I was in Melrose Place at the time. <laughs> Um, I, um, I ended up having to get a second job. So I worked as a cashier at a grocery store from six to midnight. Um, oh my goodness. So um, that was a tough year. But that I am choosing law school and moving back to New Jersey. That's very interesting. You know, when I was in um, undergrad, I thought very strongly about going to get my PhD in sociology. So very similar. Um, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure. I had always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, never really 
diverted from that, but then found sociology to be fascinating and strongly considered getting my PhD in sociology. But for the same reasons that your mother had expressed a concern, I, I was concerned I wouldn't be able to get a job. And uh, so I got my law degree. But, you know, I, I for me, I think it was the right decision. Um, I really love law school and I love practicing. And so for me, it, it turned out to be um, the right decision to to forego the PhD. Maybe someday I'll go back and get it. Who knows, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I thought my mother's reaction was interesting at the time, in part because neither of my parents graduated from college. So um, it was just kind of a very strong reaction for somebody who um, just could not, you know, had never been in my shoes. She went to work straight out of high school. She was, her mother had died. She had no money. So, um, and maybe that's what motivated her that she wanted to make sure I could always take care of myself. So, um, but it, it was a weird time for sure. <laughs> um, did you have any attorneys in your family at all to look up to growing up? No, 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 no attorneys. So, was um, of kind of our immediate family. I was the first to go to college. Um, you know, our, our expanded family people went to graduated from college, but I was the first to go to grad school. So um, I feel like I was like, at the time, a trailblazer for the performers. Definitely. Yeah, from uh, a very similar background. My dad's side, I was the first one of all of my cousins to go to college. Um, and uh, on my mom's side, you know, my, my parents, neither of them went to college. So it's very similar background. Interesting. Very interesting. I did not know that about you. Learn something new every day. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's why we get along so well. It must be. So you did go out of law school. You went to become a clerk for a judge um, in yes. New Jersey. Um, that sounds like a very fascinating experience. Uh, did you enjoy that experience? And can um, you tell us about it? It was really. Um, it was an interesting experience. Um, it just kind of was the thing at the time that everybody was close and gets a clerkship. And the better you did in law school, the better a clerkship you got. And I did, you know, okay. Like I had decent grades. I ended up writing onto law review, not grading on, but I had good enough grades. They just weren't like spectacular grades. So I ended up um, getting a state court clerkship and I had an appellate division offer from a judge and then i got this offer from the judge in chancery court um but it was really funny because the interview was tough and horrible and he called me up to tell me all the things he hated about after the interview was um, and then like offered me the job and then like a lunatic i took it um but um i'm really glad i did he was a really tough judge to work for he had never had a law clerk who had survived the whole year um of the clerkship so i was the first person to do that and um it was just a really good learning experience for me because he was one of these guys who leaving the substance behind he was brilliant that wasn't his problem he was just this disorganized mess and kind of just proactively getting him cleaned up so to speak um really was helpful i did this thing where i had different color folders for motions and orders so that when he's on the bench and screaming at me he can't find an order i'm like yellow folder um and when i went back to visit chambers like five or six years later there was a law clerk there and uh who i didn't know obviously and i was talking to him and i told him who i was he's like you're the one who made the folders i'm like yes <laughs> 
So it's just kind of funny how just kind of little things really influence your experience. But my judge is great. I'm still in touch with him. He helped me get my first um, law firm job, um, was just kind of a complete and total advocate for me. So although he was a little grumpy um, in the end, he, he was really a good friend. That's fascinating That's a, uh, that you're able to make that shift from someone who was so negative at the beginning to a positive experience. Oh, he still had criticisms of me. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> he thought I was a good law clerk. <laughs> Sometimes you need those people in your life to, you know, keep you grounded, right? Exactly right. Make sure my <laughs> ego stays in check. It's <laughs> one way to do it. Yep. So your first law job after your um, clerkship was at Drinker, Biddle and Reef, is that right? Um, it actually was at a tiny firm called Shanley and Fisher, which no longer exists. And um, a year after I was there, it was a small, not small firm, but it was, you know, I guess a biggest firm for New Jersey. Um, they merged with Drinker, Biddle and Reef. And the New Jersey locations became known as Drinker, Biddle, and Shanley. And um, after I left Drinker, um, then they became Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. And now they're, I don't even know what they are now. They merged with somebody else in the Midwest, and there's something else now. Um, so I did not anticipate them going to a firm like that. But at the time, I was so happy to get a job at Shanley. Like, I remember, like, getting a letter over the summer that, like, they were increasing my base salary from $68,000 a year to seventy-two, dollars um, And I was, like, totally like, oh, my God, I'm going to have so much money. And it's so funny when you think about it now and how much first-year associates make now. It's just kind of like, wow, I never thought I was going to make that ever. <laughs> so, um Times times have changed for sure. Times have definitely changed. Yeah, I I remember when the big shift started happening in the salaries, and it it happened, and there was sort of a cutback from you know originally. I think we were making over the summer one rate based on one rate, and then by the time we started, the recession had started to happen, and so we were actually making less <laughs> on a yearly basis than we had been um, pro rata on the summer during the summer. It was a very interesting time period. Yeah, no, it was definitely the the 90s um, and the first 10 years of 2000 were oh, an interesting yeah. time in the legal profession. Yeah, I, I summered in like 2001 and then 9-11 hit in September. And by the time I joined, you know, in 2002, it was a whole new world for the law firms. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you were at Drinker Biddle for what became Drinker Biddle for a number of years. And then you I saw on LinkedIn, it looked like you were at this other firm, Cole Shots, for a short period of time, but then moved on to Gibbs. Yes. So what drove your sort of path there, your decision making going from one firm and, and being able to make that shift, you know, on a fairly quick basis to the other firm? Um, well, I was doing products liability law, which I hadn't planned on doing at um, Drinker. It was kind of a weird, I just fell into it and I, and I liked it just fine. Um, but I really didn't like, um, and this is sad, but I think it happens to a lot of us. I did not like the female partner I was working for and she was really um, horrible to women. Like, I mean, just so much worse to women than she was men and it just got to the point that i was like i'm not doing this like i'm born and um cole shots um at the time it was cole shots mizell and foreman and mike mizell had been on trial in front of my judge for the entire year i was um i had my clerkship um because my judge sat in chancery so that just meant bench trials so there was no jury so like twice a week that he'd hold a 
this guy's trial. And I got to know Mike really well. And when I called him and said, I really am tired of this woman, he's like, come work for us. And I did. <laughs> so, um, and it was actually truly like the best group of people I have ever worked with. Like the nicest colleagues, the nicest partners. I'm still in touch with many of them all these years later. And oh my God, it's like 20 years later. And I'm still in touch with many of them because they were just so wonderful. Um, I ended up leaving because I realized um, when I went back to doing commercial litigation for them, I really found it boring and I loved the product stuff. I loved the science. I loved the medicine. I loved the interaction with the plaintiffs. They were real people. And um, I wanted to do that. So when the position opened up at Gibbons, I, I interviewed and went there and got it. And it was for a products liability associate. And ironically, prior to that time, over the course of the years, you know, summer associate programs, etc., I'd applied to Gibbons like three or four times and gotten rejected. So uh, it was kind of funny. <laughs> that I ended that I even applied again because you know you get bitter yeah. <laughs> and um, I ended up getting the job that's great and you were at Givens for um, quite a while and were became partner there what was that experience like becoming partner at, at a firm like Givens um, it was it was kind of just a, a very very mixed experience I started at a time when I mean the firm didn't even give you paid maternity leave so what was your experience like uh, moving from associate to partner at Gibbon? Um, it was weird because I um, I, had a, I had two babies um, while I was an associate and I was not on the partnership track per se. I was not on the eight years. Um, so it was hard for me. Everybody who was in my class at Gibbons was, you know, law school classmates and to watch them all make partner while I didn't was really, really tough. And then um, when I was on maternity leave with my second one, uh, a partner in the products liability group quit and went to another firm and they needed someone to fill her spot and the client liked me and I ended up filling that spot. So I had Emma in April. I think I was coming and coming back in like October, November. I came back in the, the beginning of August, um, took that on, and then made partner in January. Um, so it was really kind of a very, um, I think, unusual path. And I'm not sure it would have happened if Diane had not left. But you know, right place, right time. So <laughs> it worked out. Yeah, that worked out well for you. Uh, unfortunately, you had to cut your maternity leave a little short, but at the end, it worked yeah. out. So, but but you know, it worked out fine. Um, and you know, I it made my career. I mean, working at Givens is like made my career. It's how I became known as a products liability lawyer and how I got tons of experience with depositions and trials. Um, so I have absolutely um, no regrets about being at Givens um, for sure. I would have liked to have made equity partner, um, but it didn't seem like that was in the cards. So um, when an opportunity came to go somewhere else and be an equity partner. Um, obviously that was very attractive to me. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about that. So in 2016, you were recruited to Patterson. Um, yes. How did that, that, you know, opportunity present itself? Um, that was also kind of a little serendipitous and weird. Um, I think like most people, if I don't recognize a phone number, I don't answer the phone because I don't want to be solicited by weirdos. So um, I was I had just kind of had an argument with my practice group leader about um, business and that she didn't want me to bring in because she thought it would interfere with her business. And the phone rang and I was angry and I answered it and happened to be a headhunter. And it was a headhunter for that job. And what ended up being kind of strange was that um, 
I actually worked with John Winter, who was the head of the products group. I had worked with him years and years before when I was a baby associate at Drinker. Um, he was our local council in New York because we were um, head national council and he was our New Jersey, he was our New York council. So um, we had known each other um, and I mean, not stayed in touch, but you know, I'd see him at a conference here and there. We'd say hi. So I already knew him. He already knew me. Um, so it seemed like it was going to be a good fit. And you, um, you'd always been practicing in Jersey. Did you have any hesitation about moving to a New York practice? Yes and no. Um, the products liability world tends to be all over the country. Um, so I wasn't so worried about the fact that I, I was not admitted in New York when I went to Patterson. So I wasn't worried about the admission part per se. I'm like, oh, you know, I've been in all sorts of jurisdictions. I'll just get admitted pro hoc vice. Um, I then became increasingly concerned that I was not admitted in New York. And I think um, the forum wanted me to be admitted in New York. So I, um, again, I got really lucky. It was right when they changed the reciprocity role between New York and New Jersey. And all I had to do was fill out, you know, the character application and get interviewed. Um, but I, I will tell you, I absolutely have struggled with um, learning at, you know, this point in my career, all of the nuances of the CPLR, because it's really not like any other rules in the entire country is very unique. And then you have the judges who have there don't follow the CPLR and have their own rules and you got to know those too. And it was just, um, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of always feel like it's like an old boys club, like people who hang out in the state courthouses. And I, I wouldn't have been part of it had I started in New York, but I certainly feel like a fish out of water um, in state court in New York for sure to this day. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been practicing in New York for a long time now. Um, I started my practice in Boston um, but even to this day, I, I rely a lot on my partner who clerked in the New York courts because that clerking experience in the courts just gives him knowledge of the CPLR and the knowledge of the way things actually work on the ground that you really can't compare to if you haven't had that experience. You know, it's Absolutely. just, you can look at the book, but it doesn't really tell you how things are done. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, I, I completely, I, I would imagine it would be difficult coming from practicing almost 20 years in a different jurisdiction. Yeah, um, and I should have mentioned with my clerkship, that was actually one of the huge benefits of my clerkship, aside from my judge was, I knew the New Jersey court rules inside and out. I knew them better than anybody. Like I arrived at um, Shanley and Fisher ready to go, um, which was a nice thing, which I'm suspecting is kind of the same experience your partner had with respect to New York. Yeah, and I think that really goes to, some people um, undervalue the importance of like a a state clerkship, but state clerkships can be, you know, so valuable because you don't get that experience otherwise. Agree. And I know you're right. Law firms like to focus on federal clerkships and appellate clerkships because there's a lot of writing involved and writing certainly I think is an important part of being a lawyer, but just kind of knowing the nuts and bolts and being able to get down to the nitty gritty and handle yourself in a courtroom, I say is at least as important, if not more important than the writing. Anybody can write to know the rules um, and to be able to use them and, and advocate is a totally different thing. It is, and you can't always write your way out of a, a case or a bad argument, you know, if you, but you can sometimes rule your way out of it. Like if you know the way rules work, you can sometimes manipulate them in a way that's beneficial for your client. That Absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely true. 
So we're talking about all of your experiences and uh, working with, you know, uh, sometimes there have been female associate, female partners that are especially difficult. Sometimes they're especially helpful. I've had the same experience. Do you feel that you've used your perspective as a woman and a mom? You mentioned you have uh, two daughters um, as a role in your as your role as an attorney or as a partner in a law firm. I think I have more so as I have grown older. I'm not so sure in the beginning I did. I kept to myself a lot um, in part because I was insecure and felt like an imposter um, and didn't want anybody to know, oh, I, I'm not really ready to be a partner. I don't know how to do this. Um, so I kind of kept to myself, but I was also busy with two little kids. So I was really kind of just focused on getting the work done and getting home at the end of the day. And I regret that now. Like I didn't appreciate in the moment how much I was missing out on by not interacting with the other women in my firm as much as I, I should have. Um, and what's been really great now, kind of later in life, I've reconnected with some of those people, um, associates and partners from my old firm who I, I mean, I knew them. Um, I assumed they hated me because I never talked to anybody. And um, we are very, very close now, which has been really just a gift to me, truly. Um, so I, especially at Patterson, have made an effort to be there for female associates. And it's not just the giving them advice part. It's that sometimes they just need somebody to listen. Like they just need to vent. They don't need the advice. They just want somebody to hear them and say, I understand. And I feel like I play that role really well as a, as a female partner at Patterson. That's great. They, all the big firms would always use another person like that because I feel like it tends to be a lacking. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think sometimes, I mean, and I think it's kind of a function of our society and the legal world. I think when you're, especially when you're a young female partner, you have to, you feel like you have to prove yourself because you feel like, the men already have it made and and you somehow every day have to prove yourself again and again and again. And that's really tiring and time consuming and you get sharp elbows and you want to make a name for yourself so that, you know, X years down the road, you don't have to do that anymore. But I think it's just harder for young female partners out there. And I think that's in part why they don't make the time to um to mentor as much because they don't have the time and that's not their focus at the moment they they need to get ahead they need to build that book of business because if they don't they're out so um i think it's understandable it's unfortunate i wish it were different i wish law firms would value things other than your big book of business the other contributions you can make to a firm but um you know it's just the world we live in i think it's kind of the same everywhere yeah i don't think it's you know Patterson per se, or, you know, the law firm down the block per se, you know, it's, it's the structure of how the firms are set up um, and how success is really defined, right, in our, in our society and, or in the law community anyway. You know, if you're not sort of at the top of a big law firm, you know, people don't necessarily consider it to be success, you, to be a success. Um, as you've, you know, grown as a lawyer and as a person, have you changed in your mind, at least how you define success? Um, for sure. Um, and in some ways, it's a bit discouraging. And, and, um, you know, some ways it's very empowering. So I really thought I could be the person who would change the system. Like, I really believed that if I tried hard enough to make success defined differently at law firms, people would embrace that. And, after years of, you know, everywhere, this is not Patterson or Gibbons or Drinker specific, it's just 
I think all law firms, you know, the people at the top like being at the top. And if that works for them, men or women, they don't want to change anything. So it became clear to me that I was beating my head against a wall and um, I just was never going to be able to change things unless I had like a $10 million book of business, which didn't seem likely in the near term. So um, I didn't want that. I wanted, I wanted to be able to change things. So since I couldn't change things um, within big law, I decided that I was going to create something myself. So I'm actually um, going to be leaving Patterson um, to be determined to start a consulting firm focused on helping female entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs from historic underrepresented groups, um, which I'm so excited about. Wow, that's so exciting, Michelle. I'm so excited for you. That sounds like such a great move um, for you and a fit into everything that you are trying to accomplish. So. Kudos yeah, to you and to that success. I know, I know it will be a success. Um, Thank you. It's definitely something that you're passionate about, um, which is, I think, the first step <laughs> to doing anything. For sure. So you've made this shift in your your focus and your career to entrepreneurship. How did you um, make that shift? You know, what drew you to uh, to focus on entrepreneurship from products liability? Um, you know, I, I don't know that it was just one thing. Um, I always liked doing risk management counseling um, in the products liability space. And I had um, a couple clients where I um, gave them a hedge funds, where I gave them advice. Like they'd ask me about big mass tort litigations and should they invest in the company? And I wouldn't tell them to invest or not. I just would explain to them what the risks were of companies being in those kind of litigations. And I, I really ended up enjoying it, I think, more than um, litigating. So um, when the pandemic hit, I um, was in a really bad place. I was like very, very lonely. And I um, kind of hopped on LinkedIn to connect with people and then became part of this organization called Chief, um, which is a network for senior women. And um, it totally... And it really, I met all these women from all these different walks of life, not just lawyers, um, but from everywhere. And I learned so much and I saw kind of some of the things that they struggled with. And um, honestly, they weren't all that different than the things that like the big Fortune 500 clients I had worked for struggled with. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Wouldn't it be great if someone was there to help these women so that they got off to the correct start, or if they were mid-stage and they, you know, wanted to sell in five years, somebody could help them identify what might make a VC not want to fund them or, or buy them, or, you know, people not want them want to do an IPO, why somebody wouldn't mind buy shares. I thought that there was a need for it. Um, so I just kind of put myself out there and said, okay, <laughs> I'm shifting the focus of my practice. I'm going to do this. Um, and about a year ago, um, almost exactly a year ago, it was March 14th. Um, I launched this female entrepreneurship practice at um, Patterson. Um, and it's been um, really, I've learned so, so much. Um, it hasn't gone at all the way that I thought it would, but that's okay. Um, because it really, you know, I think life's a journey and I would not have learned as much as I've learned about myself and about entrepreneurship and honestly, the rest of the world had um, 
my vision stuck had I had the perfect vision to start with, um, which I didn't. You know, I really had to adjust a lot um, along the way, and it made me really have to be nimble, which really did prepare me for the idea of having my own business because you got to be really nimble <laughs> when you're starting something new. Some things are going to work, some things aren't going to work, and you have to be able to adjust and adjust quickly. And I really think when businesses fail, it's in part because of the inability of those heading those businesses or organizations to adjust quickly. I mean, I would love things to be the way exactly the way I plan them to be all the time. I'm a control freak. That would make me happy. Um, but it just it's not reality. And um, I think it's given me some really good personal skills to be able to launch this new business. I uh I like to double down on that. <laughs> I, I know you understand. <laughs> I understand. I've been doing this for a while and you know, I thought that I'd put up a website and the phone would start ringing. And that's not how it works. That doesn't ha not how it works for any business and definitely not how it works in the law, especially not when you're, you know, really focused on being a boutique litigation firm, yeah, um, sure. you know, with a specific type of practice. You need to get out there and meet the people that actually need your services. And, and putting up a website is not the way to necessarily do that so there's a it lot of it doesn't hurt but <laughs> you have to have it. something you have to have but right. it's not but you know it's not enough right. nowhere near enough and right. so Absolutely. um that trust me i and i find it interesting that you started down this path you know partly um in the pandemic because you were sort of missing people and missing the interactions with people because for me i i had that same feeling of you know just i couldn't stand it anymore sort of couldn't stand the isolation and that was part of the impetus for me to launch this podcast because I'm like I want to be able to talk to people <laughs> and um, do so in a way that we're actually gonna have a you know an, an interesting conversation um, so that's, that's fine we have a lot in common Michelle well, we even have a podcast in common because I don't know if you know, but um, during the pandemic, when RBG passed away, I started a podcast at the firm, which ran three seasons um, dedicated to um, legal analysis of all of RBG's cases. So um, okay. it was a great way to meet people. And I learned a lot about her and really the law. And it was fabulous. But it's interesting that we both turned to podcasts as part of a way of kind of filling that void. Yeah, and I think it's been great, and I hope you had a great experience with yours as well. I did, absolutely. It, it was a great experience. So in all of these decisions that you've made, um, as, do you have sort of a network of people that you turn to, or do you tend to keep, you know, counsel internally to yourself? How do you go about making sort of your decision-making process in terms of these important career decisions that you've been making? Um, I definitely have folks that I rely on. I have a big network of women, um, bigger than I ever thought I would have, and people who I'm very close to more than I ever thought I would have. And, um, you know, I'll often brainstorm ideas by different people in the group, depends on kind of the idea. And, you know, I'm not going to, if I know somebody's going to automatically like it, I might not actually bring it to them. I want to hear the contrarian's opinion as to why it won't work. And, you know, sometimes I listen to that advice and sometimes I don't. Um, and I but I always think differently after I hear advice, whether I agree with it or don't agree with it. It always kind of spurs a new thought for me. And I um, I relied heavily on the beginning of doing all this 
on a founders coach I had. Um, the firm hired a founders coach for me and I worked with her um, for 12 sessions. And I was dubious in the beginning. She made me do this, like what at the time I thought this stupid thing where I had to like create a mission statement and a vision statement and my core values. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? This is awesome. <laughs> fluff nobody cares um and it turns out i'm the one who cares so much um like it really kind of became a guiding light for everything i do in my life like really i you know i look at my mission and i look at my um vision and my core values and i was a little surprised when i compared my core values to many things i was doing in my life how much they didn't match um, so that really prompted me to make a change. So, um, you know, aside from really consulting with a lot of other people, and I'm lucky I have them, men and women, um, to consult with and to give me advice. Um, you know, I, in the end, I kind of like, okay, is this in, in line with my vision? Is this in line with my core values? And, um, when they're not, I tend not to go in that direction. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, that you were able to make that transition and that someone was able to provide um, that sort of framework. I, I feel like that's a, something when you've been, a, you know, so driven for so long, like law school, law firm, it's hard to get out of that, um, what you feel like you're on this path and that you have to stay on. And sometimes you don't, you have sort of have blinders on, you can't see what something that might be outside the path. So. I think that's fascinating uh, that you were able to do so. Um, with a little nudge, maybe for something you get to get uncomfortable, right, for a minute. Yes, yeah, and she really did. I mean, if I even told you the weeks and weeks we worked on all this, where like. I thought I actually, because, you know, I can be arrogant at times, when she told me to write my vision statement, I wrote it in like five minutes and sent it to her. I'm like, you know, homework done for the week. I got it. <laughs> and um, she's like, yeah, this is a good start. So like now write 20 more. And I'm like, what? And so it really forced me to just kind of like free flow my ideas um, and open my mind. Like I, I couldn't just be what I thought. So I, she's like, just write down whatever you think on a piece of paper and or type it and give it to me. I did that. And she's like, this is great. Now do 20 more. So like by the end, between the core values and the vision and the mission, I mean, I must have had like hundreds of choices um, that I had to narrow down, which I wouldn't have had. And there were things I didn't even thought think of at the time, like on my own, like it was the process that made me get to where I was. So I am happy to report that at 51, I have some core values <laughs> and a vision and a mission. <laughs> Something I wasn't able to articulate, um, I don't think until recently. Well, and sometimes they probably changed over time, right? So the core values you have today may have not have been the core values you had 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it's all part of the evolution. We're just getting better, right? Getting yes, stronger. No, and I actually believe so, that. I do. <laughs> Except for my eyesight, I'm, you know, totally happy where I am in terms of oh, my God. <laughs> Not even get into the eyesight issues. <laughs> so tell me about your book. I know that you're working on a book. I'm so excited to hear more about the book um, and you know everything about it when it's coming out, what what it's about, um, what made you decide to write a book. Um, so I um, started therapy um, probably the summer of 2021, and 
that kind of led me to start writing. I had always written when I was a teenager, like all the teenage angst, I wrote poetry about, you know, being in holes and you know, people stepping on my fingers and all this kind of dark, you know, 17 year old, 16 year old stuff. Um, and that was kind of my way of expressing myself. And as I kind of went through therapy, I just kind of felt like writing. So I started writing a little bit and I didn't share it with anybody. And then I started to, and they were very personal, authentic, raw things that I wrote about. And um, I started sharing them a little bit on LinkedIn um, and I got a really kind of amazing response. I got a response of people saying, oh my God, thank you for saying this because this is how I feel. And I didn't think anybody else felt this way. And I was too embarrassed or I was too ashamed to admit that I had flaws um, or didn't think that I deserved to have flaws because my life is so good, so I should be perfect and unflawed. Um, and, you know, that's just not the way life works. So I was really encouraged by that. So I started writing a blog, which is meant to help others um, normalize some kind of these icky feelings that we all have, but nobody wants to talk about. But it's really helped me. Um, just kind of every time I think I've figured myself out, I'll write something and I'll dig deeper and I'll get on the phone with my therapist and, you know, we've now hit another layer um, of, you know, what's going on with me. So it's been really great. Um, the blog's gotten a lot of really great feedback and it, it's really just a blog about somebody, some woman who's 51 who is kind of looking back at different incidents, instances in her life and kind of comparing them to what she would do now and, and you know, what I've learned and what I still have to learn and what I can't master. And um, people seem to really like that. So ironically, um, when I, I was when I started this entrepreneurship practice at the firm, I started working with one of our trademark and copyright lawyers, and she um, has become like my biggest advocate, Stephanie Glazer. She's been like a huge advocate for oh, me. Fantastic huge like reader of the blog and at one point she just said you know what you should write a book you should take all of this and like put it into a book and I thought about it I'm like okay you know that's kind of cool maybe I'll put it together a book of like you know essays or writings and it's kind of evolved into something just much bigger than that where it is you know the blog is a piece of it but it's also um a lot of other stuff too and I really struggled to be honest with you about learning how to um learning how, how to frame it. Like I had all these ideas, how was I going to put it together? And I was just at the cusp of giving up a couple of weeks ago. It occurred to me that actually the frame was the pandemic. Um, and that's really kind of what sparked a lot of um, these feelings and thoughts and emotions coming to the forefront. So it's not a book about the pandemic, but it's just kind of, it, it, it's in the background because it really did influence who I am today. Um, so about where I was and where I am and where I'm going and what else I need to know and um, letting people know it's okay to be, feel shitty sometimes, <laughs> like it's okay. We're not all happy, we're not all perfect, mistakes happen, we feel bad some days. You know, you, you're allowed to be unhappy some days. Um, it's okay, you know, the world has its expectations, especially on um, social media, everybody's happy and has the perfect life and that's just not reality. And I, I think there's kind of a space for somebody to say, and I'm not criticizing social media, I'm just saying that's not my life. And I think it resonated with um, women in particular, and men as well, but women in particular. Well, the, I mean, there's a lot of, the, what they call it, toxic happiness, right? Like this yeah. idea, and I think it's similar to imposter syndrome, right? Yes. You, yeah. you, you expect that 
you should feel a certain way if you've achieved a certain goal and you should feel the confidence that you can do it because someone gave you a title or maybe you know no one ever really feels that confident <laughs> you know maybe everyone's always trying to be a little more or you know think that they and everyone has those feelings and you by calling it imposter syndrome you're almost making yourself feel worse right mm -hmm. because now you feel like you're putting on an act and without realizing that you no know, everyone has self-doubt sometimes and it's okay and it's not a syndrome and you'll get through it and you know the next day is the next day and you start again so exactly that's exactly right yeah for sure um yeah imposter syndrome um definitely you know plays into this and I, and I agree with you you know it's kind of nice i mean it wasn't just nice for me to let other people know how i feel and have them say oh thank god i felt this way too it's actually nice for me to hear that i'm not some sort of like <laughs> freak you know that like i'm not the only person in the world who you know had a nice house had a yard didn't get sick didn't have um anyone die in my family and still left the pandemic like feeling like i had been through a war um and i felt like i shouldn't feel that way because nothing happened to me um to make me feel that way um so it was just nice to kind of you know also hear from other people and it normalized things not just i was trying to normalize things for others it normalized things for me yeah that's the the great thing about sharing sometimes right people actually they give you more back than you than you thought Absolutely. I, I've gotten so much back um, from the community that um, I've been able to foster with this blog. Um, so it's been it's been really exciting. And, and every week when I write something, I get at least like four or five um, reach outs from people who just want to talk like whatever I wrote about that day, they experienced it and they just need somebody to listen. And I'm happy to do that. That's, that's wonderful, Michelle. Really excited. So when is the book planned to come out? I know launch dates can shift, but what's the plan? Yes. Um, the plan is for it to come out next January or February. Um, I am writing. I have a copy editor. Um, before I give it to my copy editor, she wants me to put it into um, kind of a beta phase where I give it out to five or six people and ask them a bunch of questions and say, did this book convey this to you? Um, and then she's going to do her stuff. And um, from there, I think it's just all logistical, none of which I know how to do logistically. Um, but I'm you know, figuring it out with the help of my editor. So um, it's been great. I've thought about once she goes through it, I've thought about trying to put it into one of those writing programs, like so that somebody else publishes it and deals with like the, you know, the cover and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so we'll see. Um, right now, my plan is to publish it myself, but maybe I will, um, you know, go to one of those hybrid publishing houses and, and ask for help. We'll see. But January or February is the goal. Very exciting. Well, keep me keep me in a know. I want to be be there to. Uh... Get a copy as soon as it's available. Oh, thank you. Um, you'll okay. you're definitely invited to the launch, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> I better be. Yes, <laughs> yes, be yes, amazing. Yes, yes. And so, in combination with working on this book um, and making this shift and opening your new company, you're also about to start entrepreneurship program um, yes. with Carnell. So, yes. um, how did that come about, and and what is the how does that work? How does the program run? Um, well, um, I feel like I don't know a ton about it, to be honest with you. Um, it is something that I saw during the fall, like I saw it advertised somewhere. I was, I was thinking about 
taking a legal class in entrepreneurship or getting certified in le you know legally in entrepreneurship. And honestly, it was just too much time and really cost prohibitive. I mean, it was just too much money. And I came across this program that was free um, that Bank of America put together with Cornell. Um, it's an e-learning program. And I um, applied for it and I'm told that like the waiting list is two years long and that I kind of forgot about it because I'm like, okay, you know, we'll see where I am in 2025 if this is going to work for me. And I got um, an email actually this morning at nine o'clock this morning telling me there was a spot available and it starts next week. And I had two days to accept the spot. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited. And it's kind of really all the fundamentals of starting a business that I feel like people take for granted that you should know, like funding, for example, you know, one of the courses, there's six courses in total. And one of them's about funding. One of them's about marketing and branding um you know they're all kind of the building blocks one's about all the legal stuff you should do um so it's the kind of the building blocks of getting you off to the right start and understanding where you need to be and what i'm also really excited about is they have a very strong network of alum so they have this like list of like hundreds of companies who um where the founders have been through this program and my understanding is they help you out and um i would love I'm, I'm always open to meeting new people and hearing new ideas and, and getting help. So um, I'm really excited about the alum portion of it as well. Yeah, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Lots of people to, you know, pick their brains. So yeah. that sounds great. Absolutely. Very excited for you. Um, just a few more questions. Um, sure. So what do you value most about having your law degree, especially as you shift your focus, your you're not really practicing, you're not going to be necessarily practicing law on a, a full-time basis, but what do you value from your legal training uh, that has brought you to this place in your career? I think the analytical thinking and how analytical thinking has just become second nature to me, um, and really the ability to identify problems quickly um you know somebody will say something and they'll say it slightly imperfectly and you know i'm like then go into like deposer mode like wait that didn't make sense but it, it's really kind of i think a valuable skill for me in life and i think it will also be something that will really help my clients because i really want them to be successful and i want them to stop I don't want them to make mistakes that are going to screw up the value of their company. So being kind of the doomsday um, speaker, um, you know, I feel like I'm helping them. I can identify what could really destroy the company because I'm analytical and because I've seen what, what stupid things companies can do that, you know, they never in a million years think are going to lead to their demise, but it does. And um, I think I can, you know, share that advice. I think it's much easier to see, um, see, the forest when you're not in the trees. And um, since I won't be in the trees of these companies, I think I can help the founders kind of see the forest. Um, so I think the analytical skills and the kind of ability to find <laughs> faults in everything has been <laughs> the most helpful. <laughs> problem identifying, not fault finding, problem identifying. <laughs> I think my husband would agree with you that I try to find the fault in everything as well. But the yes, and yes. So, yeah. you know. That's where your mind goes, and it's, it's so funny. It's great for relationships, but no, exactly. <laughs> like you know, my husband will also say, like, "Don't depose me." I mean, he's also a lawyer, but he's like, "Don't depose me." <laughs> exactly. Always. I don't know. <laughs> I can't really turn it off. So <laughs> exactly, it's part of who you are. Um, but it's helpful. So 
It's helpful. I think the service that you're going to provide these companies is the value is sort of immeasurable. Like I, I think it's hard to put the value on it because it's just overwhelmingly valuable what you're going to be giving them. You know, I, so. as a litigator, as you know, you see all of the mistakes, right? You just see all of the problems, the mistakes, everything from, you know, how the partnership agreement is written to, you know, how the contracts are, are written in terms of transactions that the company's doing. Like, there's just so many things that companies get wrong. So to have you there to like sort of guide them, I think, I don't think they can pay you enough, basically. I think you are going to be providing a fantastic service. So, well, thank you. Thank you. I think that's right. I mean, you don't know what you don't know, especially when you're in the trees. Like, I've had clients um, in the legal practice that are entrepreneurs that have gone down roads that just not, weren't dumb. They were just ignorant. Like, they had no idea that they had to do things X, Y, and Z or you know, a bad consequence would happen. They just didn't know. They went on legal Zoom and filed their LLC papers and, you know, no one told them how they were supposed to deal with the money and how they were supposed to track it and what the tax consequences were or were not. They just didn't know. Yeah, but there's a lot of bad forms out there as well. And, yeah. and, and there's two points you're making, right? One, the first point is that the form might not be enough. That might be, you might need the form, but that's, a, that's just step one out of maybe yes. 10 steps that you need to take. And no one's telling you that when you're on legal Zoom. But also the second problem is sometimes the, the forms are just not very good. Right. Might have a term or more than one term that you really don't want in there. And no one's telling you that as well. Well, and yeah, and I and I think it's also just, again, like hard to see when you're doing it. Um, I'm in a business accelerator program right now, and we had an assignment this last week. Um, they gave us a company and we had to figure out how to pitch to VCs to get more funding. And I was in charge of explaining to the imaginary VC firm what the product was. So, you know, I went to the website and was like going through the website. I'm like, this copy is awful. Like, this doesn't make sense. It's things that you don't really notice until you are forced to dive into it. I'm like I could do better than this, <laughs> um, so it's just kind of amazing, really. And I'm sure no one has ever said anything to them like these two sentences make absolutely no sense, um, you know. So I, I know it sounds little, but it's a big deal. I mean, you know, a lot of venture capitalists, you know, they're smart people and they're looking at this stuff. And if you don't have an explanation as to everything you're doing, you know, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, um, you know, that really could jeopardize your funding. Yeah. And especially probably today, even more so than last week, now that yes. funding is going to be much more limited if you take SVB out of the game, right? Yes. So your these startups are competing for a much smaller pool of funds. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm hoping everybody's going to come out of it okay. I know the government's trying to, um, you know, put a Band-Aid on the whole thing. But, yeah, it was really um, shocking and tragic. SVB and Signature Bank, which was a surprise when you saw that in the, the notice. I hadn't heard anything about Signature Bank, um, yeah. but I guess it was deeply tied to SVB or similar style. Anyway, so. And I think it will adversely, um, it will have a greater impact on women because that's where a lot of women um, founders went for their money disproportionate to men um, because they women have difficulty finding funding and, and getting capitalized. Um, 
through more conventional sources. So it's a lot of women who are going to be affected more so than men. Mm -hmm. It's tragic. Well, let's hope that there'll be some other avenues of funds coming in. Yes. Well. Yes. You mentioned a couple of times your daughters are uh, so um, you have a full life as we all do. How do you balance it or do you balance it? How do you sort of manage it? I guess might be the more appropriate term than balance um, your career and, and the children and your life. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's hard and I have I balance it both through perspective and through having a strong partner. Um, so my husband's amazing. He Honestly, he does more than way more than 50% of the child rearing sort of stuff. Um, you know, I, especially when I went to New York, I believe the house at five o'clock in the morning. I never even see the girls before they went to school and he would deal with all of that. And that, you know, at one point was including putting hairs and ponytail, you know, hair and ponytails, things like that. So I think it's important to have a strong partner. I think it's important also to ask for help. Um, we have a babysitter who we've had since, my youngest, who was a freshman in high school, since she was in kindergarten, so having kind of reliable childcare help. So those are kind of the practical things. But I think you also have to look at the world as kind of a bigger picture. So I have had friends who have worked four fifths, and I, I at Givens there was a time I worked four fifths, and they get really angry if on you know their day off they have to do work. And I don't look at it as kind of a day to day or a week to week four-fifths. I never thought of it that way. I thought of it as the aggregate. So do I get to, you know, did I get to go on, you know, more often than not the daycare field trips with my daughter? I didn't get to go on every one for sure. I, there were things I missed. There are things I missed today. But on aggregate, I get to be there. And I don't think it's really impacted them <laughs> in any way. I don't think they think of either of us as absent parents. Um, you know, we're there for them. We can support them. Um, so I think looking at it and not beating yourself up over one miss or, you know, you know, one time I was like supposed to be doing something for a fundraiser and I actually forgot to make the thing. <laughs> so I was going to make I just happened to be working from home that day. And you know, the woman calls me. She's like, well, when are you bringing over the X? And I'm like, Oh. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, it's perfect, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm, you know, I, I, we're happy, you know, we're a happy family and I don't say we're happy every moment of every day. We're not, but overall, you know, it's good life. So, um, I think that's all you can ask for. That's great. And I think, uh, your daughter's probably, um, you know, by having you as a, role model um, have a confidence and something that you can't actually impart without having, you know, it's nothing you can teach them by telling them, right? You're showing them. And right. by showing them that you as a woman have an important job and um, can make, you know, contribute to the household, I think that all leads them to have confidence in themselves as well. I think that's true. And they are both very, you know, pro female empowerment. Um, there was one time about a year ago when we were at the dinner table. I don't even know how we got into talking about the patriarchy, but it ended with like my husband fleeing the kitchen as like my older daughter kept like shouting down with the patriarchy. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I never told her that. Um, but, you know, you're right. They get it from what they see and, you know, what they learn from us as parents. I have a, I have two daughters and a son, and my oldest is 14, my middle daughter is 12, and 
that scene probably could have been recreated in my household because my my girls are very similar, like very you know, pro women, and yep. you know, the the men have to be strong in order to take it. You know, <laughs> exactly. And you know, my and even just kind of little stuff. My my husband jokes around that he'd love to have one single meal in our house where somebody's not talking about their period. He's like, can we just have one one meal? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> it's nice because, you know, they feel oh, they can talk about stuff like that. So hopefully by the time they're, you know, women my age and, you know, they're perimenopausal or menopausal, they'll still be comfortable enough with their bodies and what's happening to their bodies to, you know, feel like they can talk about it and advocate for themselves in a way that I think I know I don't feel like there's a platform for for middle aged women to do that now. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, I think that they are much more open and i'm hoping that it continues um but and i think that yeah kudos to us i think that you know put on the back <laughs> on the back and to have uh have them be that open i think really goes a long way to the parents and you know to this generation we've we've been much much more open with things than our own generation parents i'm sure absolutely absolutely so. <laughs> I have a few, these are my rapid fire questions. Okay. We'll see how rapid fire they are. Um, they're meant to be short, but we'll see. Um, okay. One is, um, if you couldn't be an attorney, if you couldn't go to law school, what career would you have chosen? I think you might've highlighted this a little bit earlier, but maybe it's a different, different choice now. It is a different choice now, and it's gonna sound a little bit nuts, but I would be a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just so peaceful. Um, like you're out there with the land and the, the flowers. And I just, aside from when I'm reading, I never feel as peaceful as I do when I'm outside, like pulling weeds or doing things. In part, I think, because you have to focus so much on what you're doing to get it right that you don't think about anything else. But um, I'd be a gardener. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> you have to follow up with that later over a glass of wine. Yes. <laughs> or a writer, but you know, just for you a are writing. You're writing a book. Right, right. You're a writer. Yes. Um, what is the one thing you wish you knew when you graduated law school that you know now? Um, it's not a specific thing, it's just kind of the general don't worry so much. Like appreciate what's going on now. Um you know, there's this expression, I think it goes something like youth is wasted on the young. And it's really true because when you're younger, you don't appreciate, um, you know, how life is for you. So I wish I had worried a lot less. I wish I had taken more risks. Um, I wish I traveled more. Um, I wish I had been more open to networking than I was, uh, than I am now. I mean, I wasn't at all then and I am so much now. And I, I that's why I say to female associates, my biggest regret as a lawyer is not networking enough when I was a baby lawyer. I agree with, with all of those. <laughs> I feel like we're such a, it's such a rush to like start your career, right? Just start mm -hmm. it. Yep. Just don't think about the fact that you, that's the one time in your life where you had the opportunity to explore other things potentially. Yes, exactly. Well, we're old now. <laughs> <laughs> Older but better. Older but better. Yeah. And stronger. And yes. wiser. Yes, all of those things. And so for the third one, um, would you recommend a law career to women considering law school today? And if not, why? Um, 
I think it's a really hard profession for women to be in. I, I'm not saying it's harder than other um, like careers in finance or anything like that. I think it's really hard to be a professional woman in a man's world. And um, I think there's a balancing act between being part of that world and, and trying to change it and just being beaten down by it. Um, I think being a lawyer is incredibly stressful. You worry about your clients 24 seven, you never have time off ever. And when I say that, I don't mean you're working 24 seven, but there's always the chance you could be working. You know, you worry about your clients. Like, it's not like you punch a clock and you punch out and you go home. It's, it's nothing like that. It's not like the markets close and you don't have to worry about it until tomorrow. It's this constant worry. And um, I just don't think the benefits outweigh kind of the that sort of downside of just the constant worry. So no, I probably I wouldn't recommend my daughter to lawyers. Um, I just don't think they'd find it fulfilling um, in terms of I don't know a life choice in the end. But that's just me. <laughs> so it's refreshing to hear you know an honest and authentic take. I think that's um, important to have that different perspectives. Um, I don't regret it, but I don't yeah. put it, but knowing what I know today, I don't think I'd do it again. You wouldn't do it again. That's interesting. But the thing I value about it is I think it is a career that lets you um, have some personal autonomy over your career. You know, you have the law license and you can practice law. You can yes. practice law sitting in your bedroom if you need to. You know, you can, you can find a way to make some income um as with that degree which i think is valuable and that women need to have something like that if it's not a law degree it's something else that is going to you know i think i'd probably be, agree with your mother back in the day you know have a career have a degree that's going to allow you to um take care of yourself because yeah. i feel like you don't want to be dependent on someone else so agree 100 and and that the law has given me i you know i am independent if I wanted to, you know, go and start another life by myself tomorrow, I could do that and be able to support myself. Not that I want to, but I could. <laughs> we won't let your husband listen to the podcast. <laughs> well, he did get like a bunch of kudos. <laughs> well, thank you, Michelle, so much. This has been such a pleasure. Oh, for me too. I, I totally love, you know, I love talking to you, Roseanne, whether it's on a podcast or over, you know, a drink or a coffee. So um, thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Success in Brief with your host, Roseanne Felicello. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others. You can catch prior episodes at www.felicellolaw.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more.